Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who just is waiting for someone in the U.S. government to say it's my way or the Huawei, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. In all seriousness, today in the red chair is Andy Purdy, the chief security officer of Huawei Technologies USA. He previously worked in the White House under George W. Bush and then at the Department of Homeland Security, where he helped launch the Computer Emergency Readiness Team. As you probably know, his employer now finds itself in the middle of a messy dispute between the American and Chinese governments. Andy, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. It's good to be here. So why don't we give everyone an update? I want to get into your background and how you got where you are because you have a really fascinating background. But give an update of where we are with Huawei and the U.S. government and the Chinese government. Well, there are a lot of moving pieces right Mm -hmm. at the moment. Uh, This week, I guess President Trump announced that there would be a 90-day extension uh, of the limitation on American suppliers to be able to sell to Huawei, mm-hmm. about $11 billion worth of technology comprising about forty to 50,000 American jobs that, that are at risk in this. Uh, so that's, Explain what they are, what they're selling. So people, let's assume people don't know, aren't following every. Yeah, so it's it's a part of a multi-pronged effort by the government against Huawei. Uh, this part focusing on our suppliers, uh, basically alleging that there is national security concerns about uh, what these companies uh, sell to us. The, mm-hmm. the silicon companies. President Trump met with I think six CEOs of the companies a couple of weeks ago at the White House, uh, and so they basically. Unless the license is granted to an individual company to sell to Huawei, Huawei cannot buy from that company right. after so, the expiration of the next 90 days. Right. So they've extended it 90 days. Right. And why extend it 90 days? Well, we're in the middle, uh, in the crosshairs between U.S. and China and the trade talks, not mm-hmm. a position that we wanted to be in, not in a position that we're happy to be in. Mm-hmm. But it appears to be that you know we, we seem to be part of some kind of three-dimensional chess, and it's not really clear where it's going to end. I think most Americans, we favor a trade deal with China. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, there's so many different moving pieces that it's really hard to tell whether that's going to happen and if it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Not at all. And so these companies, including Google and many others, sell 
things to Huawei. Yeah, Microsoft, Intel, right. Qualcomm, et cetera, yes. Right. And these parts are used – I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be sure. stupid. I just want people to understand. They are used in various technologies at Huawei. Various deploys. kinds of telecommunication gear that we sell around the world. Uh, about 30 percent of all Huawei components for all of our global products come from U.S. companies. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if we can't get this resolved, if our suppliers can't get it resolved, you know, we're going to have to find another avenue. Mm-hmm. And the argument that the Trump administration and others are, be, are using is that Huawei is a national security con- concern and allowing you – kind of putting you in a, in a boat with, say, Iran. And, and giving anything help to you all will hurt our national security. Well, it's interesting. That seems to be the position of some mm-hmm. of That's the what I mean. That's anti-China, so. anti-Huawei right. folks. Mm-hmm. Some of the others are saying there needs to be – and President Trump has said this at one time or another – that there needs to be scrutiny of what we buy as to whether or not those particular products have some special national security significance or they're particularly rare or something like that, that, that perhaps a decision would be made that we would not be allowed to buy those. But right now, it's reversed so that the presumption is that we can't buy any of those things. And so those companies have to apply for a license to be allowed to right, sell exactly, us any of those things. Exactly. And it's also against the backdrop of President Trump tweeting against Google very frequently about them being treasonous and helping. There's a lot of pressures in lots of ways in this. In, and there, it is all part of the trade talks and the idea of advantaging China, essentially. So let me go first into your background, and then we'll get more to where we are in the state of play in terms of security. Because I think one of the issues is... What is a global company? What is a country? And how, what are their national security interests? And where we are as, as a technology community from a global perspective? Because I think that's one of the issues. Let's talk a little bit about your background so we can get a sense of what you've been working on. Well, I was a lawyer for a long time. I was a federal <laughs> prosecutor, worked on three congressional investigations, um, worked for the House uh, Select Committee on Assassinations, for example. And I was acting general counsel of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. So I have a lot of experience in terms of corporate compliance, which is an aspect of of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And in my work at the Sentencing Commission, I came to do a lot of work on new technologies and the kinds of punishments appropriate for those. And as it happened, when the White House set up a team to write the U.S. national strategy, I was asked to be a member of the 10 or 12 person staff that wrote this strategy that President Bush released in 2003. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to explain what that was for people? This well, it's basically it was a high level strategy of, of how the United States could take a more coordinated strategic approach. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what we need to worry about as a nation, what we need to do about it. Everything from national security threats to cybersecurity awareness, user mm-hmm. awareness, uh, that kind of thing. And trying to set in motion, creating the capabilities for our government and our critical infrastructure and our users to be more secure from a cybersecurity and privacy perspective. And those would be attacks on everything from the grid to banks to anything at all. Yeah, exactly. So explain the computer emergency readiness team. Well, it's U.S. CERT. I mean, I, I ran the National Cybersecurity Division, so I was mm-hmm. the lead cybersecurity official in the U.S. government. But the CERT, the computer, the U.S. CERT, yeah, right. is one of many CERTs around the world that shares information about attacks, about discovered vulnerabilities in products and networks, and works together to collaborate to try to make sure that the key stakeholders understand the risks out there and, and that the risks are managed, and there's prompt response to threats uh, so we can prevent them from becoming uh, much more serious. And talk about those threats. For what what are they at this point? There's been a lot written about grid attacks. There's been written about banks. Every time there's an airline outage, I'm like, I wonder what that was. You know, it's, even though sometimes it's just. Well, I, I think the reality in in the years since I left the White House staff, which was like 16 years ago, 
the biggest cybersecurity issues, with a couple of exceptions, have been like data breaches. Right. So there's been a lot of talk about what's necessary for cybersecurity, what's necessary to protect privacy. Mm-hmm. But as a nation, we haven't come that far in terms of having robust capabilities to assess the risk, to manage the risk, and promote resilience. And as our technologies move from uh, what they've been from an analog to a digital world, uh, we are going to become much more dependent as a nation our governments, our critical infrastructure, our private organizations, our citizens, much more dependent on information and communication technology. Mm-hmm. So, Well, we have. Uh, I mean, we're kind of there. <laughs> unlike in past years where some of the worst things that you had to fear, and there were a couple of exceptions, were a data breach. Now, as we come in the next five to ten years, become dependent on these systems for everything, for sensors, sensors to machine, machine to machine communication. Mm-hmm. Almost everything that we do will, will be intertwined with that. And so we are going to be increasingly dependent on the functioning of government and critical infrastructure for our way of life. And so the bad things that can happen in the cyber world can be much worse than they have been heretofore. So we have to be prepared from a security perspective. Uh, We had organized the the effort for the National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace in the aftermath of 9-11. And Mm -hmm. one of the key concepts of that was you don't wait till you know the bad guys are going to start training on flying airplanes in the buildings. You have to look at what the fundamental risks are, the threats, what the vulnerabilities are, and the consequences if they go bad. So that way we can be secure as a nation. So that's what we're struggling to, to build those kinds of capabilities. So where are we right what are the biggest threats? I mean, you talked about data breaches, obviously, and that's that's more around privacy and consumer. It's more about fraud, essentially. From your perspective, what are the ones we're facing the most, um, including state actors like China or Russia or Iran or anybody else? It's been more Russia uh, moving in on the United States in certain ways. It's been Iran. It's been lots of different countries, uh, North Korea. Yeah, the biggest concerns certainly are and have to be from a national security perspective. What could nation states do uh, to impact us? So the potential of affecting our command and control, for example, if if we're in a kinetic war, uh, you know, military force, uh, the, the, the possibility that a cyber series of sophisticated, prolonged cyber attacks could lay the groundwork for some kind of a military attack. Those kinds of things to make sure that we control the battle space, to make sure we have access to information, to make sure our society can function, including our defenses, that's probably one of the biggest things. And of course, people fear attacks, say, on the power grid. If you could Mm -hmm. bring down the power grid, that could be part of sustained kind of attacks or other kinds of attacks. As we become dependent on these systems, The data, and we often talk about personal data from a privacy Mm -hmm. perspective, but the data on which the networks and systems function, for example, the the banking system, the SWIFT data, we have to not only have the information, we have to have accurate information. So if the bad guys can either block us from having the information Mm -hmm. or they can corrupt the accuracy of the information so we don't know where it's corrupted, it could shut us down in in devastating ways. So there are a number of those are some of the kinds of things that, that we're really worried about. You know, even just the Russian bot stuff, even just on regular information, shows how easy it is to do that. How, in fact, that's actually really effective. It's sort of muddying all the waters so that you can't see anything clearly, essentially. Well, and when you look at things like spam, which can mm-hmm. contain an awful lot of malware, mm-hmm. and these botnets, these organized right. networks of, of bots, which are basically computer robots, your computer can be a, taken hostage by somebody, and you don't even know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So the ability to launch attacks from millions of computers using these techniques, that creates this white noise of cyberspace that makes it easier for the bad guys to operate 
hidden in that white noise. They don't have to use the most sophisticated cyber threats. They can use normal threats because everything is a little right. too vulnerable. Right. And so we've got to try to drain the swamp on that so that way we can see the more sophisticated attacks and attribute to, to whoever's doing it uh, the, the fact that they're doing it and we can force them to stop. Right now, you know, we'll talk about the elections in a little while, but uh, right now, where are the biggest threats for the government and here in the United States? Well, essentially, the U.S. government, and I think most governments, use, use a risk analysis. So, for example, the U.K. does an analysis of the communication networks. They say, okay, well, the communication networks are essential. What are the key nodes? What are the key parts of the network? So let's find out what those are. Let's identify the risk to those. Let's make sure there's diversity of supplier, more than one supplier sure. for each of those. Make sure there's not uh, – somebody has too big a market share. So that way you can promote resilience because you want to make sure things are up and running. In the U.S., our, our communication, AT&T, Verizon, the major companies, they've worked very well in a voluntary way with, with some direction from our Federal Communications Commission to try to identify what are the priorities for managing the risk and maintaining the resilience of our communication networks. And so there's been an awful lot of public-private collaboration to do that. Department of Homeland Security has just launched uh, – coming out with some results of an effort. Let's analyze 5G risk. What do we need to worry about? What we'll do we need to do about it? Yeah. So when you're when you're working for, how did you get to Huawei? Well, I worked a number of jobs uh, after I left Department of Homeland Security, working for a number of small startups, and then I was at Computer Sciences Corporation, a defense contractor, uh, and I got recruited by the man who, had, until he joined Huawei, was the chief information officer for the UK government. Had just led a transformation of that, and he basically pitched me over some months about the fact that I could be an advocate for a safer cyberspace from a Chinese company. Mm -hmm. And the model in the last seven years, how it has unfolded of, of what we've done, how we've tried to strengthen our defenses, uh, our ability to detect attacks on cybersecurity and privacy, uh, our ability to promote the resilience of the things that we do and make our products more secure, has been everything that I was told it would be. Mm -hmm. uh, so it has been a, a, a tremendous, tremendous experience. And yet Huawei's been dragged in the controversy, I think has been accused of being a spy for the Chinese government. You know, you know, it's interesting. When you look at the, the big investigation, which mm -hmm. was the House Intelligence Committee right. investigation in 2012, if you look at what they reported, there were no allegations. Mm -hmm. No, and I in, know that. I and get in that. fact, there are no allegations now. Mm -hmm. And some government officials have said – there have been one or two government officials who I think have misstated what the evidence is. They believe it's more about the country – than the company, more about China than Huawei. They're right. afraid that China could force us to do bad things, not right. that they're allegations. So in a way, it's an allegation that we would do bad things for the China government. Right. And we'll get into that in a minute because I think that's been a big national freak out over something like FaceApp or or whatever the technology is, is that the governments are working closely, too closely with the companies or the companies are under duress to work for the governments, which is a, you know, a, a different style than is here in the United States, although I think our government does put a lot of pressure on tech companies that isn't as well known. But it's not as coordinated. People feel it's coordinated. When we get back, let's talk about that. I'm here with Andy Purdy. He's the Chief Security Officer of Huawei Technologies USA. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. An influential poll from The New York Times and Siena College last month showed that 23 percent of registered black voters said if the election was held today, they'd vote for Donald Trump. Now, this is a big deal. Black voters historically vote Democrat overwhelmingly. On Sunday, I sat down at South by Southwest with Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne commands one of the largest young black audiences in the country as co-host of The Breakfast Club. And he's become known for his blunt and provocative interviews of politicians and his critiques of Joe Biden and the Democrats. I'm the type of person, I, I feel like as, as a black person, I don't see how we're beholden to either one of these parties. I don't understand these black conservative crazies, and I don't understand these black liberal crazies either. I think as a black person, you shouldn't be beholden to any political party in this country because we haven't really seen, um, I mean, Democrats have done more, but we haven't really seen anybody systemically help us get out of the situation that we're in. Because I think that's something that people never truly address. Charlemagne the God on Today Explained. Every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Andy Purdy. He's the chief CSO, which is the chief security officer of Huawei Technologies USA. Uh, Huawei's a Chinese company, which has gotten into a, a bit of a controversy with the United States. They arrested uh, one of its top executives uh, or detained, I guess. Is that correct right now? Well, she, no, she was arrested, arrested. And now she's on house arrest uh, pending extradition proceedings back to the U.S. Right. And the, the issue was that she was trying to get technology she wasn't supposed to get, essentially. It's an alleged violation of export control right, laws. Exactly. And it was allegedly some kind of conduct relative to banks that were helping to finance some transactions. I haven't studied it, but right. it's something like that. Yeah, Right. But behind this is the idea that Chinese companies, Chinese-owned companies, which are becoming more global, has not have not had as much – from the consumer space recently, we've had TikTok, I guess. But mostly it's not been – Chinese companies have stayed there. Some of the bigger ones that are there have remained in China and have been popular in China. I'm just talking about the consumer ones and have not moved globally. But they're – China's strength in technology over the past couple of, I guess, the past decade uh, or more has been significant and impressive in a lot of ways. People had thought of China as not an innovative place, but there's been a lot of uh, fast forward movements by Chinese companies. And so the worries have grown that these companies are working hand in glove with the Chinese government. So talk a little bit about that concept, because that's I think that's really what's behind it rather than a lot of things. Well, I'm not an expert in what happens in China, but mm -hmm. there are certainly government companies. Mm -hmm. uh, there are companies that are publicly traded that are majority owned by the China government. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are companies that are privately owned. And we're the right. largest privately owned company uh, mm -hmm. in China. So they, they certainly know the difference between you know, of official right. government ownership and, and what have you. The allegation is that because of the way the China government operates as a government, different from uh, the U.S. And, and our allies, uh, that they have the power to do things or force us to do things that uh, would violate the concepts in a country that has what the U.S. would call a rule of law. It's a very different kind of a context in a different mm -hmm. situation. Um, our leadership has been quite 
active in in maintaining distance from the Chinese government during the mm-hmm. seven years I've been there. And I think the track record that we have, and we made the point earlier about, about allegations that we've operated in over 170 countries and there have been no major cybersecurity incidents in those 170 countries. Um, you know, some would think that would at least buy us a conversation with the U.S. government that right now the U.S. government's not really willing to have with us. No, no, they're assuming the worst, presumably, that there are these, and especially with the rollout of 5G. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. The 5G is being rolled out across the country, and Huawei is a big player in this area. I don't want to dumb anything down because it's super complex, but the argument is that if we let the Chinese outfit all this, we're in danger of letting them spy on everything, essentially. I think that's the dumb version of it. And the ability to shut down communication right, networks. Exactly. I, I think right. it, that actually but one day G is going to shut everything the, down. Right, the on-off switch or yeah, whatever. Right. I think that would probably be the, the primary concern. Although most of the attention is on is on the surveillance. Right. Well, it's interesting because the context for the five G discussion is really about security of communication networks, and the fact that there's all this focus about us. We're an equipment vendor. Mm-hmm. The fact is, the telecom operators have a tremendous amount of authority and control. We sell them the equipment. They decide whether we will service the equipment and if they do hire us to service equipment, when and how we do it. And they control the data. Uh, they control monitoring the data. So when you look at the security of our communication networks, as we think about 5G, mm-hmm. that is a critically important part of it. And so, for example, when you look at Mexico, where we have a giant equipment sale to AT&T that runs major networks in Mexico, there is no pressure by the U.S. government, unlike in other countries. There's no pressure by the U.S. government to force AT&T to rip our equipment out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And there's, in fact, there's no pressure on them not to include us in 5G. Well, the reason is because they understand, the U.S. government understands, and, and AT&T is one of the best in the world, this is how we manage risk. This is what the telecom operators do. So whatever the theoretical risk is, AT&T can handle it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the same goes for Nokia and Ericsson. Mm-hmm. U.S. doesn't have a comprehensive approach to these issues. They're trying to work on it. I think mm-hmm. DHS is doing a lot of good. But Nokia and Ericsson that are deeply embedded in China, mm-hmm. for example, Nokia has a joint venture with Shanghai Bell, a Chinese government-owned company. They're allowed to do business in the U.S. only because they've entered into, as has Ericsson, a government-monitored risk mitigation program. And that's what we would like to talk to the U.S. government about. We would like to enter into a government-monitored risk mitigation agreement that despite Nokia and Ericsson's deep ties to China, they're allowed to do business. So risk mitigation is the concept, then fast-forwarding to 5G, just as I think there's kind of been a misemphasis on equipment vendors versus the role of telecom operators, because it really is a shared responsibility, is... 5G is built on the 4G system, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not a technical expert either, so I may dumb it down. Uh, hopefully, I'll be accurate w- when I do it. But one of the big debates is between the core, where the most sensitive functioning is, the core of the network, uh, and the radio access network. And so there's issues about whether or not and, – and we're only trying to sell into the radio access network or the, mm-hmm. or the RAN not sell into the core. So there's arguments that as 5G goes out and you have millions and billions of devices, that's going to blur the distinction between the core and the RAN. But Mm -hmm. the fact is the experts have a roadmap for security standards that maintains the difference, which is built on the old 4G measures of security, but they're enhanced security mechanisms for 5G. And there are real benefits to the technology for why you would keep the radio access Right. So you're, the, the, the argument being that they can't really spy. Like there isn't really an ability because there's so many vendors and uh, operators and 
distributors of all these different things and the, and such, such like AT&T buying buying those things. I'm going to back up just a second. For people who don't know 5G, give a quick explanation of what's coming. It's always coming. It's always about to be here. But 5G will do for, well, the, for the general listener. Well, 5G at a high level mm-hmm. is going to enable technologies to help the digitization, creating digital uh, vertical industries. So mm-hmm. the most commonly referenced one, like autonomous driving, remote surgery, but you'll have efficiency in energy, efficiency in manufacture, farming. You'll have sensors out there. They're even now okay. seeing sensors on cows right. and sensors communicate with machines. It 5G helps you bring the computing power to the edge, to the end user mm-hmm. so that people and organizations can serve society organizations better. So it's it's predicted to be probably the greatest you know, enabler of jobs in the history of mankind mm-hmm. as we move into the enabling aspects of 5G. So it allows more data faster. It reduces latency, which is like a response time. So for uh, autonomous driving, the communications will be yeah. that rather than a car, for example, at 70 miles an hour stopping in three or four feet, it'll stop in a centimeter. Mm-hmm. So latency means you improve those kinds of abilities right. for it to serve. So but it really bringing computing power to the edge to, to serve citizens and organizations. Right. And the, the, the concept is the idea of, of that it, that everything will be digitized, every part of the of the equation down to the cow, for example. Um, and so that's why the security concerns are greater because every single act will have a digital element to it, or presumably. Well, but, but part of it is we have the part we've been talking about in terms of the telecommunication networks. Then you have like Internet of Things. So there's separate mm-hmm. security for all those devices. Right. So the fear is all of a sudden you're going to have billions of devices launching attacks. But, you know, we have these standards and emerging standards for, for how we're going to handle that. And that's not unique to, to Huawei being an equipment vendor. And perhaps most importantly, as I mentioned for the UK, in the US, you won't just have one supplier like Huawei in the radio well, access network. that's the fear. Network. That is the fear that Huawei's way ahead in these areas. That you'll, they will you'll have, even in the US, you'll, even though we're way ahead, you'll have at least three vendors. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's part of the competition that, that people don't realize. We can contribute certain things, but we have a fragile ecosystem of competition and telecommunications, mm-hmm. which is why, for example, nobody ever talks about this, why in China... The race for 5G there, Nokia and Ericsson are allowed to compete against Huawei and Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what you think of the Chinese government, they see the value in some aspects of a market-driven economy. Right, right, in the deployment of it properly. The competition helps promote reduced price, innovation, and better security. The UK government parliamentary committee just released a report saying the communication networks in the UK will be less secure if Huawei isn't part of it. Because having the resilience of multiple suppliers is critical to, to maintaining functioning. How do you operate in this environment? Because in a lot of ways, Huawei's, they've just picked a company to be the example. They, haven't, they picked the, the correct company to do that, to ma- be made an example of, that this is to bring to force the idea around security. Because I think that's what's around it. And there's been a whole lot of coverage of the idea of what's secure, whether you allow companies in. And even I was just at a security conference in Aspen and the admiral there who was talking about the Pacific, he runs the Pacific Fleet and a bunch of other things, was talking about his nervousness is not over anybody but China, like in terms of technologically sophisticated surpassing of U.S. technology. Well, the fact is that to the point we talked earlier about risk, um, 
back when Edward Snowden released information about the PRISM program that was mm-hmm. allowing the U.S. government to spy all over the yes. world, there was a situation where the U.S. government was using Cisco equipment to spy elsewhere in the world. And there was right. a question, well, did Cisco let them or did the U.S. government hack into Cisco products? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. China and other countries can hack into everybody's products around the world. They can hack into Nokia and Ericsson. So you say you're only worried about China. That doesn't mean that you you don't have to have a comprehensive program right. to evaluate yes, yes, all the point. products mm-hmm. to make sure we're safe. And and we see some great things that Department of Homeland Security is doing to try to raise the bar and increase our capabilities. It's just we see it in Australia. We see it in Germany. It's just that then they say, well, block Huawei. Well, no, no. Let's create capabilities that provide an objective and transparent basis for which products are worthy of trust. I don't mean which products were worthy of trust last week. I'm talking about today. Mm -hmm. Those are the capabilities that we have to all work together as as a global society Mm -hmm. and make sure we have the standards and we have independent verification for everybody's products. And we're not going there yet. Mm -hmm. That's a mistake. What do you imagine then is the way out of this situation? Because it does change week to week. It's fascinating to watch that. And I know that, you know, I've talked to companies that are being impacted by this, the the companies that work with Huawei, and they have similar worries is that they're not allowed to work with or sell to or work with companies that they need to to be global citizens and being sort of pressured to do so because it's under national security concerns. Well, if I had the answer to that question, I would probably be sitting in a big white house somewhere. So we have a complicated situation, and and the trade talks appear to be very, very difficult uh, Mm -hmm. with so many different factors going on. And I certainly don't think – and we don't suggest that the trade talks solve Huawei's problems, but it looks like if there's going to be a trade deal, there's going to be some kind of resolution resolution of the Huawei situation. Mm -hmm. But – People misunderstand that. People think, oh, well, that means it's political because you're going to negotiate away Huawei. No. This government, and I I still know a bunch of people in it, is not going to just say, oh, a company can play a major role in American communication networks without very strict controls. We'll only be allowed to do business in this country if we're under controls at least as strict and and Nokia and Ericsson. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. And someday we'll get to the point that – the U.S. has a comprehensive program on how to determine whether a product's worthy of trust. Uh, and at that point, we'll be allowed to compete for that business. Hopefully, it's you know in the next five or ten years. Mm-hmm. I think the big danger is, and I, I think we're really at a watershed, if, for example, on the $11 billion we buy from American companies, if we find our way and, and, and are forced to Buy buy from other people. If we're forced to create our own alternative to the Android platform, for Mm -hmm. example, we might not come back. Mm -hmm. I like a world where 30% of all Huawei components come from American companies. Mm -hmm. I like a world where folks buy the best stuff everywhere in the world. We have comprehensive programs to address risk because that's fundamental. But we've got to be working together to have the competition for innovation and the sharing of information. We've been shut down at a bunch of universities in the U.S. where we pay them money to conduct research and publish it publicly. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't cut off our nose to spite our face. We shouldn't endanger 40 to 50,000 American jobs from the American companies that sell to Huawei. When it's clearly no national security concern about the ability to sell those particular products. If Mm -hmm. you think anything that helps China or anything that helps Huawei helps China, 
then we're talking trade barriers. Right, right. Well, I think it's a larger concern of China moving around the globe, being dominant in technology, and the next age being the Chinese age, the next age of technology. We're going to talk about that when we get back with Andy Purdy, the chief security officer of Huawei Technologies USA. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. We're here with Andy Purdy, the chief security officer of Huawei Technologies. Obviously, Huawei is the Chinese company sort of been caught in the trade wars and a lot of uh, allegations about national security and everything else. One of the things I also think behind this is because I hear it a lot from Silicon Valley. I've had interviews with Mark Zuckerberg and others. And one of the things that struck me when I did an interview him about a year ago started this conceptual idea of it's us versus the Chinese to dominate the next technology age. Um, it's being used as a little bit of an excuse, well, it's a, as a big excuse by tech companies, U.S. tech companies who have screwed up, like Facebook, to say, I call it the Xi or me argument. Like, if I need to be big. You can't break me up because if not, China will take over everything. It's it's a ridiculous argument on many levels. At the same time, the U.S. has dominated the internet age, the beginning parts of the technology age, and most of the big companies in this world are U.S. companies, technology companies. That's changed rather significantly, and there, especially you know, there's Israeli companies, obviously, there's European companies, there's Russian companies, sort of. Um, but in general, China is the competitor to the U.S., and many people have written about this. Talk a little bit about that concept. Is there has to be a zero-sum game of who dominates the next internet age? Well, I don't think it has to be a zero-sum game. And in fact, as we try to learn lessons from the current situation we're in, uh, some people draw the lesson that, well, America made a major mistake by not having a company like a Nokia, Ericsson, mm -hmm. or Huawei. They're saying that was a big mistake. But we have to remember that our resources went into other things. People made choices based on opportunities and profit and innovation. Similarly, when one is now saying, well, what do we do going forward now? We don't have the strong company like Nokia or Ericsson. Do we try to spend billions to create a company that's going to create 6G? Hmm. Is that the smart thing to do? I don't automatically assume that we made a mistake, nor that it would be smart to do that. But I do think we need to strengthen one thing that we have as a disadvantage in our country. We have a disadvantage in our ability to formulate industrial strategies. Right. We have to get government and private sector to work together to figure out, okay, going forward, what are the most important things for us to prosper and be safe? So, for example, we might decide, well, no, it doesn't make sense to build our own 6G. Perhaps we spend money to improve how we monitor the networks. And I know DHS is trying to do some of that mm -hmm. stuff. Maybe we put some emphasis in cybersecurity measures and detection measures that we can find things better uh, and that you can do like a whitelisting or like a program like Apple does with mm -hmm. some things. So you can be sure that what gets delivered is, is what's secure. Trusted computing modules, things like that. Maybe it makes more sense to spend money on that and spend the other money on, you know, how do we do some of the things to use the digitization of vertical industries so that we can create the jobs because that's what it's about. It's not about, although we sometimes say it is about the U.S. beating China or the U.K. or whatever in the race for 5G. No, we want the advantages of the jobs enabling and life enabling what, what falls off of ca it. characteristics of these things. Right, that's right. what we need to promote. The, what is preventing that industrial policy? We had that for so many years. I mean, there was so much. I mean, one of the, one of the myths about Silicon Valley 
and a myth about a lot of things, is that these things just happen by the sweat of their brows. They're just innovative and then it just happens. Or I'm getting paid this enormous amount of money, but it's because of my work. When in fact, it's about policies and everything else that advantage certain people and don't advantage others. The sort of mythology in Silicon Valley is that they did it all by themselves, when in fact, it was a government program. It was was enabled by the government. I mean, the internet's excellent proof that the government does sometimes work. How do you get to that idea that the government should work very closely with technology companies without seeming like you're doing what people think is happening in China, where it's too close a relationship, which I think was broken by the Snowden revelations in many ways, um, and it's still healing. That. Well, and, and frankly, when you look at how our European allies, and we don't know how it's going to come out in the end, are pushing back on the U.S. pressure to block Huawei from 5G, they're basically saying, particularly the U.K. and Germany, you didn't give us any evidence that, that Huawei did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put You're in- You're just assuming you did something. Uh, you, uh, we're going to put in place measures to address the risk and we'll uh, apply the measures uh, to all vendors. I think what you're talking about needs to be led by the private companies because you're right. There are things like in, in the early days of the internet, mm-hmm. there are probably some technologies that came out of the space race and other mm-hmm. things. So, for example, in 2017, Samsung and Intel and the Securities Industry Association created a paper to recommend how the government and private sector should work together on exactly what we're talking about. How do we promote – the creation of jobs in the various industries and the most likely paces you can create jobs. So it's not the government picking winners and losers, but it's creating a level playing field. It's creating opportunities, taking regulations away. But smart people have to sit down and say, what do we think and kick around ideas of what's most important? And sometimes there may have to be some things where the government spends R&D, but it's a very few and far between things that, that mm-hmm. they need to spend. But in the tragedy of the commons, if there are some things where we really need the government to spend, and we've got to put up, we've got to put the money up. But the private sector needs to lead and say, how do we work together? You look back and say, why don't we have high-speed trains in in America? Are we about to make a bigger mistake with 5G? Mm -hmm. We've got to have the leaders come together and say, let's develop a strategy because the Chinese don't have that problem. No, they don't. Although they make some, they run headlong into things. I'm not sure the Belt and Road Initiative is really working out for them. And, you know, they, they throw a lot of money away, but it's not always buying what they need. It's also a long-term – it's a mentality of long-term as uh, Scott Gallagher, do my Pivot podcast with, was talking about this idea of the Chinese government. You know, they'll move whole towns. They have a – you know, and if one American farmer gets a hangnail, it's like massive coverage and it, the political implications are high. And it's harder to move that way, to make industrial policy, essentially industrial policy and make it stick. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, in some of these areas like 5G and and whatever's coming next, you do need to have a coordinated – thing which hasn't happened from our government in a long time. There is, it is on some level. And I do I actually do think the Edward Stone thing did impact it, even though you can feel it from Silicon Valley people. They talk about it all the time. Well, I think, for example, I think Chancellor Merkel, the head of Germany, mm-hmm. I think she remembers the fact that the U.S. was monitoring her phone calls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they sometimes feel the U.S. comes across as a bully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what, what has to happen next? Are you hinged on the on these trade talks, this idea of that that this will at some point settle? Or what happens to the to the deployment of five G in this country? Well, what will happen is it, it looks like they will have a diversity of suppliers, probably mm-hmm. Nokia Ericsson and maybe Samsung might be the third in, in terms of the radio access networks. Mm-hmm. And what it will mean is it won't be as good or as efficient or as, as cost effective. The prices will be higher. Um, and they'll move forward with something that they call 5G. And, and it will just take longer to get the, the full benefits of it. Mm-hmm. And then Huawei will move to be working with governments across the world who aren't 
haven't been pressured by the U.S. to stop. Well, and hopefully in the long term, you know, I, th- I think Huawei really takes a, a long-term view of its business and opportunities. Uh, you know, Huawei's going to be around. And when you think about uh, sort of what the, how the company's been caught in it, if you had to, you know, I think most you're going to have a group of people that are going to think no matter what, this is a company that is under the thumb of the Chinese government and and, and the risks are there because they could at any time be turned on. And I think it sounds really crazy, but the, this Nash, the, I call it the national freak out over FaceApp. Like Putin's got my pictures as I'm an old person. Like it's the conceptual idea that they're, that in this age of violation of privacy and control of data and the idea that companies can have a hegemony over tech in a way that's very dangerous. It's like having the best nuclear weapons, I guess, um, that you're not going to ever not have Chinese, especially Chinese companies, not be suspect no matter what. Well, and I think everybody should be suspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- that's the bottom line. And we have to remember and we have to hold, I don't know if the Federal Communications Commission chair, Chairman Chairman Pai, he suggested there be greater regulation of our our telecom operators. I don't know about that. I think we've got really good telecom operators and I trust them a lot more than I trust the government to say Mm -hmm. you should do this and that. But when we talk about fear from China or wherever, the telecom operators have an absolutely critical role. And so we need to make sure there are programs to make sure they are conforming to the kinds of measures that are best practice. You have to have measures to make sure independent verification of all the products, to make sure bad guys haven't hacked into anybody's products. That's the kind of thing when you have an objective basis for trust that's going to help make us safer, not only uh, in our minds, but in fact. And if you had to pick the, the three most important security issues, national security or otherwise, across the globe, what do you imagine them to be? Aside from the fact that you work for a Chinese company, what would that, from your perspective, be? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult, very difficult issue. One of the most important areas, of course, is our communication networks. Mm-hmm. But we have such diversity of suppliers in different parts of the country. It's like our power grid. Partly because of the flaws of it, you have segmented parts of the power grid and our telecom operators are segmenting the networks. So if bad things happen, it only happens to a very small part. So I'd have to think about those things where the data, because we have ransomware attacks, which are a big problem. Mm, yes. And so that the data that is most important on which like our monetary system runs, mm-hmm. we've got to make sure that that is inviolate, that we can get access to it, and it's going to be 100% accurate all the time. So I think the accuracy of data on which our systems rely uh, for the functioning of what's most important to us in the world I- is the way to go. And I think DHS is doing the right thing by saying, okay, let's do a risk assessment of 5G, but let's identify those other things that are most important to us as a society, and then make sure we put the adequate protections in place. Well, then finishing up, how do you you know, obviously the biggest thing on people's minds is the election security, whether it's the manipulation of Facebook or whether it's voting machines or there are all kinds, a range of security issues around that. And it's that's a global, it's a global issue uh, going forward. How do you imagine that threat is seen? Because these legislations is not passing. A lot of this legislation is being held up in the Senate due to partisanship. That's like a perfect example of something that's critically important at the same time hasn't been addressed correctly. Well, I think there's an awful lot of effort going into it. Mm-hmm. I, I know DHS, yeah. I, I know the multi-state ISAC, I know the state legislatures are putting a lot of time into they it. Are. And if you think about it in terms of, okay, you've got a voting machine, starting from the smallest thing. Well, we can do a lot to secure a voting machine, mm-hmm. okay? And then who are you going to share it with? 
So there Microsoft are, has some interest. I was just at Microsoft seeing some of their new ideas around this. So it's a combination of the traditional kinds of perimeter defenses, but it's also things like encryption and making sure that you control the, the repository of, of whatever the data is. So you control it uh, in motion and at rest, both before it's transmitted and after it's transmitted. So, you know, and then the question of, well, how do you bring it all together? So it's really a multi-layered kind of an aspect. And we've got to try to make sure that the people who make the decisions that we're going to do electronic voting don't just say, oh, I want to be able to say we're doing electronic voting so we'll get out ahead of our security measures because mm -hmm. it's all about risk and we can manage risk mm -hmm. effectively. And the question is you need independent people. It's like financial audits. There's a reason that auditors come in. Right. We need to have independent experts come in to evaluate the things that are most critical and, and elections are certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. When these trade talks, I think most people feel the Huawei thing will go away when the trade talks end. When do you imagine – 5G, because I really think the point is 5G rolling out properly to citizens to create entrepreneurial opportunities, create businesses, all kinds of things that fall off because so many businesses do fall off um, this technology. What do you think is at risk if it doesn't get deployed properly? Well, I, th I think it will be deployed. I mean, it's not going to get out ahead of its rails. Right. I think it will be deployed. It's kind of like the Comedy Central bit where the Noah was talking about the uh, AT&T phone that had 5GE on it. <laughs> it's like there's going to be something they call 5G. It's yeah. just not going to give the full performance right. And, right. And, and full capabilities. And so the the job-creating aspects of it won't be you know, fully enforced. I mean, I think that's probably the worst worse that happens. That will have a crappy system. That will it, it's like we don't have high-speed trains. We right. don't know what we're missing. Right, right. We don't have decent 5G or good 5G. Right. We're not going to know what we're missing. Right, right. And we'll, well, the U.S. has always lagged behind in so many ways. We had, and, and in fact, the price is a lot higher yeah, than exactly. we ought to pay. Had, we, one time we had the chairman of the FCC and we showed that the U.S. was like below Lithuania or some country. It was some country we should not have been lower than Namibia. I don't know. And and the price was number one. It was fascinating. And then we were like, this is just, why do we have the most lagging? This is broadband. And the days of broadband access. And it was really interesting to see what held it back. At the time, it was something else. It wasn't security concerns. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's a really interesting issue. And I think it's gotten sort of sucked up into nine different issues. Um, but what's critically important is, as you said, is testing the resilience of these systems and in, in terms of protecting risk analysis around them, because that's what the most important part is to do this before you sort of get into these more broad debates about country versus country. But I, I appreciate it. it. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Andy, where can people find you online? You don't seem like a big Twitter, are you? <laughs> I don't see you. Yeah, I'm at uh, Andy underscore Purdy, I think, on, uh, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you don't strike me as a big Twitter. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Brandon McFarland. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.